wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The reading, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, The Advent wreath is a circle with no beginning and no end. It is a symbol of endless love and faithfulness. Out of darkness, light shines, pointing us in hope to the one who came to overcome the darkness of this world and to be our light in the world to come. God of light, place a candle in our hearts so we may walk as children of the light, treading gently on the paths of peace and ever ready to welcome the signs of new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening, church. Grace and peace. It's great to be back here. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Felipe Assis. I'm the senior pastor of Crossbridge. And I get to come here about once a month or every six weeks to open the word with you guys. And I'm excited to be here tonight to do that in the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, how many of you guys have a nativity scene at home or at work? How many of you guys? Come on now. Got the Christmas spirit going? Huh? We have a, we, we don't, we actually, we, we do have a new one. Uh, we were in Bethlehem. Come on. Uh, <laughs> we were in Bethlehem about a month ago, and we bought one made of olive, olive wood, and we have it on top of our piano. And then we have one at the Key Biscayne campus. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, is that most nativity scenes get the biblical text wrong. And, and this is the critical chapter where things go south, okay? Um, number one, the Bible never says 
that there were three kings. You're like, wait a minute, we just sang that right now. But listen, the Bible is inspired, not the songs, okay? So trust the Bible. Um, it could have been two guys, it could have been five guys, it could have been, well, that, that's a restaurant, but it, it could have been 10 guys, could have been 50 guys, we don't know, but the Bible never says that there were three wise men. They're not kings, wise men. Now, um, we deduce from the fact that in verse 11 it says that there were three gifts, but like this year, for instance, I'm giving my wife three gifts and they're all going to be from me. And so that doesn't mean anything. Here's the second thing that they get it wrong, right? Is that the wise men, these wise men from the east, they were not in the manger with the shepherds. Have you seen that? I mean, look, that's what drove me crazy. When I got to Key Biscayne, I said, take these wise men out of this nativity scene. So I was just kind of like this Grinch of Christmas, removing like elements from the nativity scene, because this is not in the Bible. In fact, in verse 11, you read that, that they show up. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, we read these things. Well, gosh, man, it's so dark that I think I got the wrong text here. Anyway, I'm reading from 2 Corinthians. Um, <laughs> there's a correlation somewhere uh, because the Bible all connects. It's all interconnected, but uh, that's not the right text that I wanted to read tonight. So verse 11 here of chapter 2, and going into the house. So most biblical commentators say that um, they, they received the sign that the Son of God was born, but it took them about eight months to about a year uh, to find out where Jesus actually was. And, uh, and so as they, there was a long journey for them to actually get to where Jesus was. And so when they got to where Jesus was, Jesus was no longer in the manger, uh, but he was now in a house with his parents. And so you're wondering, you're asking yourself, well, but who were these guys? Um, let me tell you a little bit about uh, these, these, these wise men. Now, now, there's not a whole lot of detail in the Bible about the wise men except for the fact, this is the only chapter that, by the way, records this experience. Uh, but, but this is what we know. We know that wise men back in the ancient Near East uh, were the leading voices, the trusted voices of that culture. These were people that were cultured. These were people that studied. Uh, these were people that were respected both from the spiritual community as well as the uh, scientific or whatever science they had back then, the scientific community. People listened to what these guys had to say. They were the cultural elite of those days. And there's a significance why the gospel writer Matthew uh, pieces this information about the birth of Christ in the beginning of his gospels. It's not in Luke, it's not in Mark, and it's not in John, but it's here in Matthew. And here's the reason why. He decides to put this piece of information for us today is because he's trying to build a contrast uh, between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God to show the amazing aspect of the coming of Jesus Christ that the wisdom of God, the ultimate wisdom of God has come into the world and that the wisdom of the world is in fact not only interested in knowing Jesus, but they're actually worshiping and bowing down to Jesus. Why? Because the wisdom of the world uh, is insufficient while the wisdom of God is sufficient for all of life. The, the wisdom of the world is exclusive while the wisdom of God is inclusive. And, and I think it's a very important theme for us to talk about during this season because uh, not only... Um, uh, are, are there a lot of people exploring 
the truths of Christianity during this season, because you hear so much about it, right, in the media and in church and through songs. But we live in an era that's characterized by information. There has never been a generation with so much access to information as our generation. Uh, nowadays, you can learn pretty much about anything just going to YouTube, right? I, I, I've never learned, I've never taken uh, plumbing lessons, but the other day I was, a fix, I was fixing a pipe in my house. It actually worked, to my surprise, because there was a YouTube video of how to do that, right? That's amazing. But uh, uh, the other side of the coin is, even though we have so much access to information nowadays, like no other generation in the world, we are very unwise, very, very unwise. And the message of Christmas is one that the wisdom of God, the eternal wisdom of God, has been made available to us through Jesus Christ. And it's inviting us into a life of quality uh, with him. Uh, first, I said that the, the wisdom of this world is insufficient while the wisdom of God is sufficient. We see this here in the story. So, and, you know, and this is regardless of the times, regardless of the fact that, uh, you know, the, if you compare the wisdom of God to the wisdom of this world 2,000 years ago, or even uh, to the wisdom of this world expressed in our modern, current pop culture. And I think that these wise men realized that. They had access to information. They were studied. Uh, they, uh, they were helping people how to navigate life by doing things such as reading the stars, right, by practicing astrology, try to bring purpose and meaning into people's lives. But they knew that that which they had to offer uh, was limited and something obviously was missing. That's why they go through the great lengths and the sacrifice to pursue this supposed king of the Jews that had been born. There was something divine, something special about him that was worthwhile their time to get to know him and to pursue him. Something, even in the wealth of, of their own culture, in the wealth of their understanding, in the wealth of information that they had access to, at that moment in time, they knew that, they, something, that something was missing, that something was lacking. And it's always lacking when you compare the wisdom of God to the wisdom of this world. So compare the wisdom of God to uh, pop wisdom nowadays in our culture, right? There, there are several things that uh, we hear, narratives that our culture is preaching at us. Uh, the, one of the main ones is uh, pursue happiness at all costs, right? This is what we hear all the time. Uh, don't live the life that your parents or your community of faith or your society has imposed on you. All right? Don't seek happiness through them, but pursue happiness on your own. And specifically do that uh, through work and, and, and through achievement. If, if you're successful in your career field, this is what we hear, right? Since we're kids in, in America. If you succeed in your career field, you will be happy. And, and, and here's another one, too. Pursue romance. There has never been a culture this obsessed with romance as such as our culture that if you are not successful in your career field, and if you don't find romance in life, you are a complete failure. Many of us here are measuring ourselves by those standards, right? I am not successful at work. I'm alone. I'm dating this guy or dating this gal, and I'm not sure that they're of quality, like, material for me to marry, you know? Don't tell them if, if, that, that, if they're sitting next to you right now. 
But unless we know that we have found, like, our Prince Charming or our, 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 our fairy princess, right? Our culture says that unless you get to that point, you're, you're nobody. And, and let me tell you something. Uh, there is happiness. I'll tell you this. There is happiness in finding purpose through vocation and work and being successful. There is happiness. I'm, I'm, I'm lying if, if, if I say to you that there's no happiness there. And there is happiness in romance as well. But here, here's, here's what the wisdom of the world fails to tell you, is that this pursuit of happiness is circumstantial, is momentary, it is not eternal, it is not lasting. You know, David Foster Wallace um, was a novelist and writer, and he actually committed suicide, you know, several years ago. But at one point in time, he gave a speech to a bunch of graduating college students at a leading university. And this man is, is not a Christian by any means, or was a Christian by any means. He was actually an atheist. And he speaks of this pursuit for happiness that is a, that's preached at us so instantly in our culture that it's almost like... Uh, it, it's, it's almost a, 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 a worshipful religious discourse, right? That you ought to have a relationship with your career and, and with this pursuit of the romantic that it, that's almost like worship, right? It's ritualistic and it's worship. And he says this, look, he says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, I'm feeling that, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You know what he's saying? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you know, this pursuit of happiness through success, achievement, money, beauty, romance, it only takes you so far because no one can guarantee success forever. No one experiences success forever. Money runs out. The economy takes turns. What happens if your identity is married to your work? What happens if your identity is married to that which you possess and you lose that? Who are you now? What happens if your identity is married to your image? What happens if your identity is married to a partner? What happens if that person betrays you? It's gone. What happens when you age? What happens, what happens when your body no longer looks like you were 22? What happens? Happiness is gone. And the ultimate message of Christmas, one of the things that Christmas is preaching at, at us, to us, through the wisdom of God, is that Jesus has come to bring us lasting joy, not momentary joy, not circumstantial joy, but lasting joy, a joy that cannot be taken away from you, even if your body ages, even if people leave you, even if you lose your job, even if you have less money in the future, even if you're not even able to build a savings or a 401k plan, there's still happiness because Jesus is still there. I remember the words of a pastor one time. He was a successful man, and he lost everything due to bad decisions he had made in his life. And he was 
he had recovered from that season of darkness in his life, and he was sharing with some of us his experience, and he said this that really profoundly touched me. He says, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Because Jesus has come to bring lasting joy, and he was a testament and a proof to that. Here's the second thing that we hear from uh, popular wisdom in our culture. That the only thing worth trusting is science. We're encouraged to discredit and disregard faith. That the last authority on any subject matter is what does science say? These men, their job was through research to teach people how to live and navigate their lives. But they realized, again, like I said in the beginning, that there was something missing. And they knew, wise people know, that you can't completely trust science and research. For one, as the time changes, science always changes its opinion on different things. You know, just take nutrition, for instance. I remember at one point in time when I was growing up, they said that egg yolks were good for you. And then it was bad, you know, and then no one is eating egg yolks anymore, and we're all eating egg whites, and eggs taste horrible. And, and, and then now people are saying, no, egg yolks are good again, right? You know, when I, was, when, I, when I started to do, like, a, a diet for competition, like, three years ago, they were saying that coconut oil was really good, a really good source of energy, and then they said, that's really bad for you. So we don't know. It's always changing opinions because it's research pinned against research. So somebody comes up with a research, with a finding, and then somebody else, like a year later, you know, just builds this different research to contradict this other person, and that's how they make the thing flow, right? So science is always changing. But besides that, science can only take us so far. You know, it's interesting in this passage, I don't know if you noticed this, that uh, as they were reading the stars, the course of the stars, through the stars, God was, in fact, telling them that something, was, something or someone special was to be born. And so the star and their research took them to Palestine, to Jerusalem. But you know what took them to Jesus? the word of God. You know, so, so, so go back to the passage. Look at this. Isn't this interesting? So they, so, they, so they get to Jerusalem, and the first thing that they do is they go talk to Herod. Who was Herod? Herod was the Jewish king, but he was actually placed there by the Romans, right? And now, as, as Herod hears them saying that they're there to visit the new king of the Jews, you know, obviously, Herod is worried because if there is a new legit king, now he may lose his job. He may lose his crown. So he gets concerned. And so the first thing that Herod does is like, I wonder if this is actually true. So he invites the scribes and he invites the theologians, right? So the people that worked with the Old Testament texts, um, and with the Bible and the people that interpret those texts. And so he invites them and says, is, does this make sense? Is this true? And, and if this child is to be born, where is this child going to be born? And, and, and then the scribes tell him this in verse 5. Go to verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem or of Judea, 
for so it is written by the prophet. And, you know, if you have a Bible, there's a quote-unquote here, a paragraph, which means this is a quote from an Old Testament passage. And we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the, the star, general revelation, creation, revealed to them that something special was happening. and God was about to do something great, but it was actually the Bible that took them. Special revelation, what we call it. It was actually the Bible that took them to Jesus. Uh, Beth, Betty, Becky, uh, Betty, I'll get her name right. Becky Pippard, Rebecca Pippard. Uh, is a Christian writer. Uh, she, she's written a couple um, New York Times bestseller books. And in one of her books, I remember reading a story where she, um, she attends this uh, psychology class in Harvard. And it's an amazing psychology class that she gets to sit through. Uh, the professor there, what, he's, what he did was he, he has this case study, right? They, in Harvard, they play with case studies. So, so they have this case study and uh, where he... Uh, uh, shows how the relationship that this man had with his mother had completely ruined his life through the years. It was a phenomenal case study. And so after he presented the case study uh, and showing how, in, 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 in the many ways in which that dysfunctional relationship had destroyed his life, she raises her hand and she asks him, okay, thank you very much. This was a great analysis great research, and diagnosing uh, this man's life and patterns, behavioral patterns. But how do we help him? How, how do we help him to move forward? And, and this, is, this is the response that she got from the professor, okay? <clears throat> he said this to her, look, we're scientists. Forgiveness is a matter of right and wrong and a matter of values. Who's to say who's right or wrong? Now you're getting to the area of faith. If you're looking for a change heart, listen to this, you are looking in the wrong department. Isn't that interesting? Science can only take us so far. Here's the encouraging part about the message of Christmas as well. The wisdom of God in contrast with the wisdom of the world is that Jesus not only has come into the world to allow us to see ourselves for who we really are, that we are sinners and broken people in need of grace. But he's not only come, coming into the world to diagnose us. Hey, you're messed up. See you later. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jesus. Oftentimes, religion is really good at that, at diagnosing us, but leaving us right there. Just like science, Jesus comes into the world actually to bring healing. He says, I did not come for those who are healthy. I come for those who are sick. And that if you place your life's trust in me, I will heal you profoundly at the deepest level. I will heal your heart. I will actually, I will actually give you a new heart. And here's a third thing that I'd like to say about the wisdom of this world in comparison to the wisdom of God. We live in a generation that believes that we have arrived and we fail to see our own blind spots. See, we have arrived at a time that we believe that we have all the answers to all the problems, right? That we, had, that we may have the solutions for all of humanity. And you know what's interesting? When you look 
at generations. You know, it only takes about 15, 50 years for the next generation to look back and say, that was so dumb what you believed. <laughs> now, we look at our parents now and our grandparents and we say, I can't believe that grandma and granddaddy and mom and dad actually believe that. <sighs> so glad we're in 2018. In fact, that's what people say nowadays. Hey, man, stop doing that. This is 2018. <laughs> you know, in 2050, your kids will be looking at you and say, I can't believe that mom and dad believe that. Where is the wisdom of the world? The answer is always out the door. You know, C.S. Lewis used to say this, that, and that's on the cover of your bulletin. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Is eternally out of date. And, and therefore, by contrast, you know, part of the encouraging message of Christmas, also on top of everything that I've said so far, I, have, I still have some encouraging things to tell you, but, but I'll tell you this. Right now, halfway through the sermon, is that Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God in flesh. In fact, let me read this from 1 Corinthians 1, 20. I, I don't have the passage, sorry, in, in the back here. So you're just going to have to listen to me. And I have to find a light source here to read this because it's so dark. Um, you guys complain about the darkness of Key Biscayne. This is dark. All right. So this, this is what Paul says. Paul Look at how, what Paul, how Paul, Paul asks this question. He says, where is, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of, his, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why is it so significant that Matthew pieces this story in the beginning of his gospel? Because Christ is the wisdom of God. And in Hebrews 13, verse 8, we, we, if you go there, we read that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you want wisdom? Go to Jesus. Why did Jesus come into the world? To offer you this wisdom that you would never have access to unless he took on human flesh. And live the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. Why did he come? So you can have this quality of life. So you can tap into the wisdom, the creator God of the universe. Could you imagine for some of you that do not have access to this wisdom, if you could navigate life with the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. We call that the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. That God has come into the world to invite sinners enjoy and to participate in life with him. See, that's why, and I'm going to point to now, that's why the wisdom of God is the most inclusive wisdom, while the world, world's wisdom is the most exclusive. So if you live on planet Earth nowadays, you know this, that there's never been a time in, 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 in this planet where the world has been this polarized politically and religious, religiously and economically. We live in a polarized world. America 
is very polarized. The world is very polarized. We lived in a world of contrast, and we're encouraged to hang out with the people that are like us, whether it's virtually online or in our neighborhoods, even in our office space. I'm going to hang out with my tribe. Yet Christianity says this in the person of Jesus Christ. This passage teaches us about that, that Jesus has come to shift the religious paradigm of his days. Because up to this point, God was the God of the Jews. But now Jesus is showing that the God that has become incarnate is the God of the universe. He is the God of every single human being. That he has come to call those who are near and he has come to call those who are far. That he has come to call those who are shepherds and low class. And he's come to call the cultural elites. That he has come to save Men and women, people of all races, slave and free. You know, as a pastor, and if you live life in the real world with people, I try to do that as much as I can. I, I, I try to stay away whenever I can from church people. Uh, I love you, but I like to be with real people because I, I have to preach and, and to real people. I, I like what John Wesley used to say, that my parish is the world. And, you know, when I'm talking to, to people, you know, they, they say, Pastor, we love what you're doing. We appreciate you so much, man. There's so many people that need Christianity, you know, you know, people that have broken marriages and, you know, poor people and uneducated people. <laughs> we assume that the educated, the wealthy, the cultural elites do not need Jesus. Have you thought about that? Have people said that to you? And, in fact... I'm sure that some of you have experienced that when you became a Christian and you told your friends, it's like, what's wrong with you? What was wrong with you? Why did you get into church? Why are you going to church? I mean, something going on in your life that I should know about? <laughs> and yet the gospel is saying that we're all sinners in need of the grace of God. And Jesus has come to call everybody in those who are near and those who are far. And, you know, if you, if you think about the history of Christianity in the last 2,000 years, it's, it's quite remarkable. And I actually have a map of the world behind me. I want to show you this, a little bit of geography. Um, so uh, you can't read the box there to the left unless you have amazing eyesight and vision. And uh, I recommend you to, to apply for NASA um, if, if that's you. But, you know, so, so you look. Let me, just, let me just show you. So um, in... in, 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 in in, uh, in, in green, the color green is Islam, okay? Present, this is the present map of the world, okay? Uh, and, and the spiritual landscape of, of, our, of our planet. So uh, green is Islam. Uh, brown is Hinduism. Uh, light brown is Buddhism. Now, now look at this. Where is Islam? Islam is green. In northern Africa and in the Middle East, correct? That's the highest concentration of Islam. Okay. Where is Hinduism? Hey, there's no Hindus in Brazil. <laughs> it's only in India. And then some other countries like Bangladesh, I'm imagining there, you know, uh, just um, east of India. Uh, where's Buddhism? In China and Japan, pretty much. And the non-religious are the red, you know, um, over there. It's probably communist China and, and North Korea and that sort of thing. But, but where's Christianity? Everywhere. And you know what's interesting about this map? 
is that shows you and proves that Christianity is not married to any particular uh, culture. You know, some people say, yeah, sure, you're a Christian. You know, you're, you're born in America. But look at the map. You see that? You see how inclusive Christianity is? There's no religion as inclusive as Christianity because Christianity will encourage certain aspects of certain cultures, but it will challenge at the same time. Christianity is not married. Christianity does not just not go to bed with any particular culture. When it did, it was a disaster. But the essence of Christianity is, is, is a faith that is free and that it's inclusive and that it's applicable to every single person from every generation and every race. And this is what this passage is about. But here is the second thing that I'll say about the inclusivity of Christianity. Is that Christianity, you know, in the person of Jesus, does not only invite the stranger, but it also invites the doubters as well. I think that the most important, I was reading this passage, and I think that the most important line and question in this whole passage is the question that we read in verse 2. That when the, uh, the wise men get to Jerusalem, what is the question that they ask? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? That's the most important question of this passage. Where is he? What are they doing? They're searching. What are they doing? They're seeking. They have no idea who this is. They have no idea where he is at, exactly at. The star has led him to that place, but that's all they know. But they're asking the question, here we are. Where is he? You know what they're showing? They're demonstrating a type of doubt that is healthy. They're demonstrating active doubt. They're demonstrating humble doubt. Christianity never discourages doubt. If you're here tonight and you are questioning whether Christianity is true or not, you're asking questions, you're exploring, this is the right place for you. We're never going to turn you away because it's an important process in your spiritual journey for you to ask questions. In fact, if you've never asked questions I will challenge your faith because you maybe have the faith of your parents, the faith of your community. It may not even be a real faith. You know, there's this writer that I love. His name is Richard Rohr. He says that, you know, the spiritual, the spiritual progress in one's life is, is characterized by three buckets. He, has the, he says there's the bucket of creation. You know, you're created and you're born into this family and you receive these, these values. And some people never leave that first bucket. But it's an immature spirituality. They never grow. It's always an infant spirituality. Because I'm a Catholic, because I, I was born a Catholic. And I was christened as a Catholic. And I'm a Protestant because, I don't know, you know, I was probably, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. And I still come to church. But then, for you to keep on that journey, you have to go to the second bucket, which is the bucket of decreation. Right, where you have to be scrutinized, where you go through emotional crisis, where you begin to question the faith. You know, you have to go through that moment of crisis in life. Now, there's some people that never leave that moment of crisis, and their life is always a mess. But if you're able to leave that season of deep creation, you will experience what the third bucket is all about, which is a season of recreation. But the whole process is characterized by asking questions, honest questions. 
you know, one of the most frustrating things nowadays, you know, as a pastor, I get to talk about faith and religion and office spaces and, and you know, in gyms and, uh, you know, with people of all walks of life. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that I hear the most nowadays is, yeah, I, uh, I guess I'm a, 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 an agnostic, you know. Uh, none of us know everything, so I guess we're all agnostics at some point. That's what people say. I'm not smart enough to be an atheist, but I'm agnostic. And I say, man, that's lazy doubt right there. You're just, you're just saying, well, I guess I can't understand. And I guess the people that I admire, there's some sophisticated people. They say that they're agnostic or that they're atheist. And this whole Christianity thing, is organized religion thing, is, is, is for manipulation and control. And so I guess I'm, I'm just going to settle as an agnostic and be lazy, right? Sitting on the couch of spiritual life, you know, eating my bags of spiritual Doritos, and, and, <laughs> and getting fat and being lazy with my doubt. This is not what these men are demonstrating here. You know what they're willing to do? They're willing to live there because we don't know where they're exactly coming from. Some say that they came from Persia. Some say that they came, you know, from, you know, modern-day Lebanon. Some say that they came from further away. But that doesn't matter. But here's what I know about their trajectory I know that it took a long time. I know that there was no speed trains back then. I know there was no airplanes back then. I know there was no helicopter back then. I know that it took a long time, that it cost a lot of money, and they risked their lives to find out about this Jesus. Because their doubt was not lazy. Don't have lazy doubt. Doubt. But have an active, humble doubt. I'm open-minded. Don't you say that you're an open-minded person. Be an open-minded person. Explore it for yourself. Don't take what your parents have told you about the faith. Don't take what your friends or the people that you watch on YouTube are saying about faith. Explore it for yourself. Look at the scriptures like that they're looking here. They're, they're taking that in. And you should ask the question, is Jesus? So do the work. That's the first thing I'll tell you. Don't be lazy. And then secondly, ask the question. Start with this. Is Jesus who he said he was? Well, some people discredit Christianity nowadays. Say, I don't, I, 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 I want nothing to do with Christianity, Pastor, because ah, look at the ethics of Christianity. It's so primitive, right? Look at what Christianity teaches about sexuality and gender and family matters. That's old school stuff. You know, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. We're 2018, Pastor. All right. I don't believe in the ethics of Christianity. Some people come and say, look at what Christians have said about science. Man, listen. Don't take an opinion of one Christian thinker for every single Christian, okay? People have different opinions about different subject matters. So, but, but it, nevertheless, oh, what about these issues here? Did, the, was God, did God really create the world in six literal days? Because I, I don't believe that. See, that's why I don't trust Christianity. And then some people say, look at the testimony of Christians. I look at all these Christians. I have Christians in my office. Those guys are, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be that, you know? If those political leaders, if those business guys are saying that they're Christians, I don't want to be a Christian. I, want any, I, I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But here's what I'll say. Okay, I get you. There are bad Christians that are giving Christianity a bad rap. I understand your struggle with the whole ethics of Christianity. Even with your struggle between science and faith, I understand all of that. But don't start there. Start with Jesus. You know why? Because if Jesus is not who he said he was, the God of the universe incarnate, 
okay, then nothing matters. Who cares about the ethics of Christianity, right? Nothing matters. But if Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God incarnate, born of a virgin, come into the world to save you, to live the life you should have lived, and die the death you should have died. And if he had, in fact, raised from the dead on that third day, if that is true, then everything changes. And I believe that those magi, or those wise men, which were not three, by the way, <clears throat> as they walked into that house, verse 11, they had that epiphany. I believe, I believe that the Spirit of God revealed to them who that child really was in a powerful way. And you know why I believe that? Because what we read in verse 11 <clears throat> is that the next thing that they do is they fall down on their knees and they worship. They say, our wisdom is nothing before you. Our wealth is nothing before you. Our lives at your service. That's what they're saying. You know, if you, if you exercise healthy doubt, and if you ask the right questions and you explore your way into Jesus, and if you're able to walk into that spiritual house at some point in your life, you may be just surprised. See, I have nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the wisdom of the world. If you're trying to understand what you're going through in life, you go to counselors, read self-help books. You know, there's a lot of information out there, but I'll tell you this. Even though these things may be helpful to you, good advice, only Jesus can give you good news. Only Jesus can give you the breakthrough that you're looking for. Only Jesus can heal your heart in the way that you want. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. But you will only experience that if you're willing to take the risks, if you're willing to spend the time like these men were. And you know what? I hope that tonight you would think about it and you would embark on this journey. And you will find out the Son of God come into the world made flesh to invite you into a life with God to experience and ultimately the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Christ and uh, he's the personification of your wisdom come into the world and our prayer tonight, Father, is that many would come to this realization. Uh, Father, that you, will hum you would humble us. Uh, Father, that uh, you would build in us a faith strong enough to deposit our life's trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.